Welcome to Behind the Product, a podcast by SEP, where we believe it takes more than a great idea to make a great product. We've been around for over 30 years, building software that matters more. And we've set out to explore the people, practices, and philosophies to try and capture what's behind great software products. So join us on this journey of conversation with the folks that bring ideas to life. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Behind the Product. As always, I'm your host, Zach Darnell. Joining me is my co-host for this show, Matt Swanson. Matt, how are you, my friend? Doing good. How are you? Doing very well. You helped kick off this show by doing our first episode with me, and I appreciate you coming back and joining me for another. We had Jack Nichols, the VP of Product over at Genesis, as our guest. You know, I'm, I'm curious, Matt, what were some of the highlights from our conversation with Jack that you found most interesting? Yeah, so I came into this not really knowing much about telephony uh, space or any of uh, sort of the work that Jack has done. So uh, it was really kind of an interesting learning experience for me to take a look and see what parallels I could draw between something that I am more familiar with, like web development and how sort of uh, the thinking goes in, in his space. So things like how do they think about building uh, APIs and platforms and how do they position their um, offering? And then sort of uh, what do they see the future being with things like machine learning and AI and what kind of new integrations they're seeing? Oh, yeah. I thought that was really interesting, too, the the way that they're thinking about applying AI into that vertical. The other thing that stuck out to me, uh, I feel like we talk a lot uh, about this a lot with our clients uh, around like testing, validating, prototyping new ideas. You know, I feel like normally we don't have to deal with too terribly many constraints, uh, especially on the prototyping side, right? I, I feel like you have spun up clickable prototype or uh, even just a, a codified prototype relatively quickly in a web browser. And you can kind of go out and, and have somebody poke at it. You know, Jack talked a lot about how there are, you know, regulatory and telephony constraints in their industry where they actually have to provision circuits and phone numbers and and a lot of things that add more complexity to their ability to test and validate and prototype quickly. You know, I don't know, have you have you seen that in, in other areas? Was that was that kind of surprising to you? Yeah. And I think anytime you sort of start dealing with sort of the intersection between software and sort of uh, you know the real the real world, that's where I think you can run into these problems where there's just more consideration that needs to be done. It's not to say that you can't do any prototyping or, you know, limited rollouts or testing. It's it's just a little bit more involved. Yeah, that's, that's a good point. I'm thinking back to a project I worked on and the customer was interested in doing some kind of, of feature where you could uh, call a doctor and get uh, kind of a quick consult instead of scheduling a whole appointment. And it was sort of so onerous to really get that whole process set up that what they actually did to prototype it was uh, when you uh, click that feature, it would just pop up and it had the doctor's uh, cell phone number on the screen there and you would just call them directly. There's a way to make it easy and simple, right? Yeah. Now, now obviously that's not the long-term uh, solution. And then once they sort of uh, validated that uh, people were calling this or, or nobody was using it, then they can sort of make a better decision, whether that's uh, integrating some a uh, platform like uh, Genesis has, or you know, deciding that maybe uh, the resources are uh, best spent elsewhere. 
So, Zach, one of the things that you have maybe more experience than I do is sort of working in these bigger enterprise companies, or at least seeing companies transition from, you know, startup to scale up to full-blown enterprise. So were, were there anything that stood out to you? Well, uh, Jack and I worked together a few you know, years ago when it was still interactive. And uh, I love that he's been there from the time that Pure Cloud was, you know, a, a very small idea, an opportunity inside of Interactive to now it being the enterprise product suite and loved hearing about kind of his journey through that. I left, you know, a few years after this, and uh, I think it was great to kind of hear some of the insights, the things that he learned, challenges, et cetera. Uh, so I think that's a really fun part of this conversation. Yeah, it was probably nice to be able to uh, catch up with a former coworker and kind of see how things ended up. Yeah, it, it, uh, it was like, oh, for once in a, in a, you know, not very often, I get to feel like I know what I'm talking about for just a few minutes. Uh, it was, it was, it was almost reminiscent for me. So it was nice. So I guess with that, Matt, thank you so much for joining me again as our co-host. And I guess we'll get into the show. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the show. Hey, Matt. How you doing, buddy? Hey, Zach. How's it going? It's going well. So Matt, thank you for joining me as a co-host again. I think it's been about 10 shows since you've been on here. You kicked us off earlier last year. So I'm, I'm really excited that you came back with us. And our guest today is Mr. Jack Nichols, VP of product over at Genesis. How you doing, man? Not too bad. How you doing, Zach? Matt, good to chat today. Doing well. Jack, really quick, um, you and I worked together a long time ago, so I know I know a little bit about you, but just to level set for anybody that doesn't know you or Genesis, tell us a little bit about you. Tell us a little bit about Genesis. A little bit about me. So uh, today I am the vice president of product with our Genesis Cloud business unit. My teams focus on what we call our composable CX platform. So everything from developer interfaces and ecosystem to our integrations, our strategic partnerships, and then uh, marketplace. So we've built and manage our marketplace from end to end. So a lot of really cool, fun stuff. And I'm a, I'm a startup guy at heart. So for those areas, I love working with developers. I love working with these smaller companies that are getting into our marketplace and using us to really catapult and build their business. So it's really fun to be able to do all those kind of things. You mentioned a little bit about Genesis. So for those that aren't familiar with Genesis, Genesis, we are the leader in the customer engagement space. So customer service, customer engagement and really establishing ourselves as what we see emerging, uh, what we call experience as a service. Pretty much, if you've talked to a big brand in the world, you've emailed them, you've called them, you've chatted online with them, you're probably using our technology between us and that brand. So that's really, you know, for me, it's what we really excel at is connecting consumers and brands together to help make that better experience because we've all had that horrible customer experience uh, before and we try to make those things much better. Very much so. I, I had one yesterday. So I'm, I'm looking forward to them getting whatever they have in there today and switching it out to you guys. Absolutely. So tell us really quick, when you talk about engagement as a service, uh, you know, pull maybe the top three to five things uh, inside of that product suite to help people better understand when they think about engagement. It's more than just calling into a contact center. So, you know, when we think of it, we call it experience as a service is kind of what we're seeing everything move towards. But within that, to your point, there's what we call customer engagement, which is how do you engage with your customers? You know, which can be historically, it's always been reactive. You know, if you think about history, you have a problem, you pick up the phone, you call. You have a problem, you send an email, and that's still a lot of that. But what we're seeing is, when it comes to customer engagement, is it's not only you know reactive, but how do you get proactive 
And really now what we're starting to focus on with AI is how do you get more predictive on that? So if, you know, for example, we release some new products around if Zach's on my website and I know information about Zach, I know that maybe he was part of a campaign. Maybe he called in recently and wasn't happy about something. How do I engage with Zach maybe on that web experience and really, you know, turn him around from being a potentially detractor from their brand to more of a positive experience on that. So that's kind of a, one of the areas we focus in with that experience as a service. The other part is we focus on the employee experience. We think this is a key kind of element is not just thinking about how does a brand interface with their customers, but how does that employee interface with their customers? Yeah. So if you think about when they're using, you know, online, they're logged in, they're handling a lot of times, maybe not so happy customers in a lot of cases. How do we build the tools to make them more successful? How do we make them be able to operate a little bit more effectively and, you know, and handle the ever-growing load of volume of work that folks are having. I mean, we all see that the volume of work has gone up, especially with COVID. You've seen more and more customer interactions and we've seen these contact centers just explode with customers reaching in. How do I change my flight? What happens to the cruise I'd booked? And, you know, and so we build a lot of the tools to help how to train these agents, how to manage their day-to-day and how to make, make it a little bit less painful for them as they're navigating and making these customers happy to also make sure they don't, you know, have that issue of being, you know, just walking away exhausted every day. So really quick, more context. You, you've been at Interactive for what, about 10 years now, give or take? Uh, sorry, Genesis. <laughs> yeah, no, no, but it's, so, uh, yeah, because we were both that Interactive at the same time. So, yeah, I've been started with Interactive about almost nine years ago now, and then have been here through the acquisition of Genesis. So, you know, started with Interactive back in the days we call CAS or Communications as a Service, which which is where Zach and I worked together. Came in there very early days. You know, I joined CAS when it was about $8 million business. It had kind of gone through three iterations of kind of life, I'd call it. It started off as a DR solution. It moved into kind of a managed hosted solution. And then it moved into more of a kind of what I'd call first generation cloud solution, which is when I kind of joined the team. So it was great to be part of that. And then you've been there with the early days of PureCloud as well, all the way through to it now being the kind of the enterprise product suite. Yeah, it's been really fun to see it go. You know, I, got, I was lucky enough to be part of a, uh, a SWAT group that was brought in by the CEO at the time, Don Brown, when he said, I think we have something of this R&D project we've been working on that we could actually turn into a product. Um, and he brought a bunch of us that had been in CAS and you know, had made good and lots of bad decisions. So we had the uh, battle scars of knowing what was going to work and what wasn't and uh, brought us over to be the initial team outside of development. So we did pretty much anything and everything from product manuals to figure out how we should onboard customers to building pricing models to actually doing field enablement. I spent a lot of time traveling the country early days, just talking with executives on why is this new platform going to be great? What are the problems they are having that we need to solve in it? and really exciting times. I think it's interesting because telephones, I think a lot of us nowadays think of them as sort of an old school technology. So I'm curious, what was the reception like kind of in those early days when you were trying to internetify phones and phone systems and and bring software I know software has been in phones probably for for a lot longer than people think, but what was that sort of environment like at the start? It's funny because as much as I love all digital technologies, I like to connect on Facebook and Twitter and WhatsApp, and you know you're seeing that more and more with the you know younger group. There's also this core 
need for a lot of businesses still just to have that telephony presence, to have that telephone line. Now, I think that's morphing more and more because they're expected. It's not just a dumb PSTN line anymore. They're expecting when there's a call in that there's more contextual pieces. And it's almost becoming a digital interaction in some ways, because if I click to dial in my cell phone, companies expect certain information to be pulled over from what was I doing in the app when that happened, you know, those pieces. And if someone, you know, I think the criticality is interesting also, because if someone picks up the phone, I mean, you can imagine this as a consumer, someone picks up the phone and calls you, they expect one, not to be waiting a long time. And two, for whoever gets on the phone to solve their problem. Because, you know, it's easy to send an email and you're a little bit more forgiving if you have to go back and forth because more of an asynchronous communication, I can send it, I can get to it later. But if I'm spending my time to be on the phone, I expect you to get someone that can solve my problem. So, you know, for me, we've seen the urgency and the value of the phone call go way up of what the expectation is versus when, you know, it was just the only way to contact someone was to call them on the phone. Do you find often that businesses, that telephony and the communications, is it one of the first things that they're trying to like digitize or is it one of the last things? I think what we're finding is it becomes the entry point for a lot of customers. They start off and say, look, we have to have a rock solid phone experience. You know, if someone calls into us, if I call into, think about it, you know, if you're trying to call into, we'll say your airline and change it, that phone experience has to be rock solid. So there's a lot of effort put into that up front to make sure that's that's good. And I think a lot of companies, as new technologies have come on, what they've ended up having, and this is you know where I think we have this great benefit, is they have this dysfunctional, fragmented experience because ultimately, you know, they had a telephony from you know an old legacy, you know, Avaya system. You know, Avaya's kind of drowned it out, but they had an old legacy Avaya. Then they bought a different solution to handle email. Then they bought a different web solution to handle web chat. Then they went and built their own mobile experience. And those are all disjointed experiences. And so I think when they go to look and say, how do I truly transform and kind of harmonize? They look and say, okay, well, we need to make a rock solid voice experience. Now we need to layer those other pieces into that so that you know, if Zach wants to send an email and needs something that can basically change from being an email right to a phone call, you know, we're seeing that need more and more where maybe there's certain things I could do but I want to be able to have a phone call to finish up a piece or I need to call Zach and get a very critical piece of information that maybe he doesn't want to put in a chat box. Uh, so we're seeing that kind of ability to switch between things come up more and more. And you have to have really, a, you know, you have to have a single you know, customer engagement system to really be able to accomplish some of those things. I'm really kind of curious, like, let, let's say that I either I have a business or I'm a product developer myself and we're trying to integrate some of these you know, chat or phone or things that Genesis provides, like, how should I be thinking about um, Genesis? Should it be more like, this is the, you know, AWS of communication stuff? Or is it more like a no code marketplace where we're, you know, dropping in chat widgets or or all the above? It's interesting, because we just actually went through a whole exercise with our marketing team at the end of last year. And what we found was, you know, Really, our, our strength is we kind of have, we, as we joked, we have a leg in both camps. So we see the need for customers to be able to consume things very quick and easy. I mean, you don't want to build the basics. You know, I think that's where if you look at some of the you know, communications providers out there that, you know, just offer, I'll call it raw telephony APIs and things like that. You have to build, you know, so much of it just to get the basics versus, you know, with our platform, we give you all the, the, the core fundamentals. I always say we give you the 80% of the box. And then we give you all the APIs, all the SDKs, all the pieces to be able to extend that. 
80%. So you can create that kind of 20% customized, true, great experience. Because if we think about a lot of stuff, you know, your house, think about houses, a lot of times there's 80% of them, you know, hey, here's the five models to choose from that Polte gives you. And then you do the 20% of customizing your paint colors and the pieces inside. And that's what truly makes that house your home, which is, I think, a good analogy for how I think of it. Uh, just when I think about it, it's like our product maybe wants to send someone a notification via a text message. Like I don't necessarily uh, want to be uh, dealing with you know provisioning phone numbers and doing all that stuff. I just I just want to send somebody a text message. So it sounds like that's kind of the abstraction that you're going for, while still having the rock solid infrastructure you know underneath it all, so that we don't have to worry about it as the developers consuming. And I'd say even it's you know where we see it a lot is. You as a developer, like we were talking about, you know, before we started this, you want to be able to send a notification out because you need to be able to do that within your application. The business wants to make sure that if you send a notification to Zach, when Zach calls in, that they're aware of that notification. And I think that's where our platform exceeds because if you go with a CPaaS, you know, a communications platform as a service where it's just, hey, here's a raw API for SMS or API for a voice call, you lose that context and you lose that kind of customer journey. Where we you know, have found our value, where we think there's value is, hey, we want to give you the API so that you as a developer, you can send that SMS notification. But we want to make sure the business, when Zach calls in after he gets that, has the context of all the communications along with that SMS that came from you in their understanding of why he might be calling in to deal with that brand. I'm thinking about kind of the last nine years and, you know, Jack, you talk about early on in the pure cloud days being added to the SWAT team. Was there a point in time where that group recognized that pure cloud was the future? I would imagine that wasn't immediate. Sure. Hey, we see an opportunity here, but we've got, I mean, that at the time uh, we were what, 15 ish years old as a company, almost 20 years old as a company, been around, done a few things, you know, two primary platforms with CIC and CAS, two different main offerings there that have been proven. At what point in time do you feel like there was this recognition? Like, yeah, you know what? Pure Cloud's the future. It's come in so many different iterations because I think there was also, you know, as Interactive got acquired by Genesis, we almost had to hit a reboot on, on that whole journey of saying, yeah, Pure Cloud is the future. You know, I think Interactive was starting to see it at the time. And really, it was kind of phase one when we kind of came in as a SWAT team. It was, we started thinking, we think there's something here and we're investigating. And it's got kind of, kind of, we were still looking for that product market fit, I'll call it. And, um, you know, early, early days, we had what we called the road to 25, which was how do we get our first 25 customers in six months, uh, which is comical today because we probably signed 25 customers in a week now. But was how do we get 25 customers? And, you know, there's a lot of learning. You know, how do we onboard them? What features are we missing? And, you know, for me, it was a lot of feature fit discovery to make sure we actually had, you know, the right features to take to market that we'd actually have a viable product. And I'd say, you know, we had that. And when we GA'd, you know, I always go back to, um, you know, the uh, LinkedIn, you know, quote of, if you're proud of your product when you GA, then you waited too long. You know, and I look back now, and man, we were so... So not ready, but you know, we had customers and we believed what, what we were doing was going to be the right way to go. I think it took a few more years from there, to be honest, probably another two years for us to truly say, hey, we've hit the mark. We're growing like weeds. We brought on these customers. We're making them happy, which was slowed down a little bit because of the acquisition at the time. And I think, you know, again, like I said, it hit reboot a little bit. 
when we came in, one of the best things that happened was when we got acquired, uh, a, a gentleman named Deepak Advani kind of stepped in from, he was on the board, stepped in to say, hey, I want to protect this because we weren't quite there yet, to be honest. We were, we believed we had something. We were all drinking the Kool-Aid that were part of that. But the larger organization was like, I'm not sure there's something there yet. And he said, no, I think there's something there yet. They just need a little bit more time. And he kind of came in and gave us the time we needed to really spend that first year after acquisition to really get our footing under the ground and really start to see that it was growing. And then I think the business started seeing, hey, you know, we're seeing a change in the market of where customers are. You know, I think that was a big piece of it for us was all of a sudden when the customers started changing their stance, you know, it wasn't just us trying to sell a product, was customers saying, no, I like the attributes of what's going on over here. They're not quite there, but I'm willing to buy into that vision because I believe they're going to be able to get me where I want to go. And I think that was kind of one of those moments where we started hearing these customers talk about, you're still missing these key features. We still need this, but we believe in where you're going is the right place to go. We're willing to go on that journey with you. And I think that's that's that true validation point where you're like, we have something because customers are now believing in it also. Do you feel like there were maybe some specific markers? I don't, I'm not necessarily thinking, you know, either metrics or KPIs, but, you know, maybe markers is the best description I can think of off the top of my head here that you guys were kind of having your finger on the pulse of to help influence some of that. So you, you, you mentioned, you know, customers being bought into a vision, you mentioned shifts in the market. Do you remember what some of those specifics were? There's kind of, you know, if I think back on it, I can think of almost, you know, three main phases, maybe four, if you want to break one of them up, kind of where I see almost our, our maturity curve being at, you know, if I want to look at it from that, it's almost the phases I think of them in a maturity level. You know, that first phase you could call the earlier stage was, you know, just figuring out, you know, do we have something here, you know, kind of call say product discovery phase two, you know, and I break that first phase into two that kind of, do we have something here, product discovery phase two was how do we get to product market fit, which was, you know, we're still reaching for every sale we could get. We were still pitching the vision and selling more on the vision than really what we could do and listening to the customers, you know, to kind of direct us. Then we moved into kind of what I'll call phase three, which was really starting to scale, you know, and I say that because that's where we started seeing, you know, some some early technical decisions, you know, as a product manager that became a, an appeasement for us to scale. We had to figure that out. So I can remember this entire time when we actually, for a given time, we stopped our roadmap, said, you know what? really going to roll out a couple key features. We're going to focus all on stability and how we scale this platform because we see people are starting to come here. We're starting to have to chase them less. They're coming to us. We've got to you know, stop on some of the feature work and make sure we're ready for this you know, next level of customer load that's going to come in. Uh, and it was a hard decision at the time. Our GM at the time, Olivia Ju, made that decision. And it was hard to swallow even as a product manager, as you can imagine, because, you know, Half the fun of being a product manager is being able to get features out to customers and see them using what you've, you know, you thought they would use and all those pieces. Uh, but we really came together as a team to do that. And it's paid off because it's allowed our platform to scale just exponentially last year as we brought on, you know, users. And I'd say, you know, we're just now this year moving into what I'd say, you know, the fourth phase, which is, you know, really enterprise maturity. You know, when you're working with customers of a certain size, they're willing to change some of their processes. They're willing to work with you more. They have less compliance and regulatory oversight and needs. You know, we've moved now into the enterprise side of the house. And I think we're going through another maturity curve right now of, you know, how do we mature to be able to handle these large contact centers, 30, 50,000 agents? What features do they need from a product? What are the fit and finish items? What are the compliance and regulatory? You know, where the things before where you say, that's great, but a lot of these companies have internal compliance and regulatory boards they have to report into. 
And so, you know, we've been learning a lot very quickly on how to service that, you know, we hit that scale piece and now it's kind of, we had the main features. Now it's like, how do we come up with that fit and finish elements that we need to really truly make sure this thing can hum for those large customers? Going through those phases is, uh, sounds like it's a fairly common practice among software products in general. I'd be curious, I know that when it comes to something like, let's say we're just making you know, a web application, uh, we've got tools like Google Analytics and we can uh, record you know, user sessions and things like that. In a place where so much of the product has kind of an interface with humans or the physical world, whether that's somebody getting a text message or somebody calling in, are there any challenges that you have that are unique to the industry when it comes to doing user testing or getting getting feedback or collecting metrics, or are there any any metrics that maybe would, would surprise us as sort of outsiders to the industry that, that are really uh, key when it comes to uh, determining whether or not, you know, a product offering is, is catching on? It's definitely, you know, we, we met, we value the metrics and we look at a lot of different metrics to your point. You know, we started off early days with Pendo using that to be able to track what customers and agents were doing. I think a unique situation we have is, you know, we are in customers. You know, we have we have supervisors that have a certain expectations. You have contact center managers. Sorry, I couldn't get that out. That have a certain expectation. But then the challenge is, I really need to get down to that agent level. Well, agents are all based upon utilization. You know, they're usually paid by the hour, and to get feedback from agents can be very challenging because you have to figure out how do I work find a customer that's willing to give me access to that agent and take them off, potentially taking revenue generating calls, taking customer calls to be able to give me feedback. And so we've had to figure out lots of ways to start to, how do we track that better? How do we look at things from the UI? How do we you know, use things, tools like New Relic to use, you know, since we're all we're a full API first shop, we can start to track at least API behavior and what, what are they clicking? What are they doing based upon that? What, what screen do they go from here to here on and be able to use some of that a little bit more effectively. And you know, with that phase four maturity, we're actually getting ready to start up a sponsored user group to try to get more access to those those individuals and find ways to get more feedback. You know, we have great systematic feedback and I think that gets you so far. You know, we, the next thing is we want to figure out more and more of, you know, shadowing a user and shadowing agents to make sure we can understand exactly what they're doing in that context. Yeah, that's interesting. Uh, I'm trying to imagine, uh, like, how, how do you sort of prototype uh, some of these experiments when, when you're doing it? It feels like there's a lot more uh, startup costs or, or setup that needs to be done to you know, provision phone numbers and hook into systems, whereas in just more of a pure software uh, environment, we can we can do you know mockups or paper prototypes or uh, make a clickable prototype, or we can throw crappy first draft up on on a web page. Especially since you deal with a lot more enterprise level customers, are, are there any particular techniques that you've used in the past? Yeah, no, it's it's definitely a, a, an interesting situation because to your point, it's easy to do a UI mock-up and pass it across folks. But when you think about the fact, oh, well, they have to order the carrier. And Zach can probably remember these from uh, early oh, CAS I days. Do, actually. The- you're, bring, you're bringing back some interesting memories when we were trying this in the early days. Yeah. I can see flinching. Yeah. One of the things that we actually instituted last year, which I think has actually been a big help, is we've brought into uh, more design thinking. Our GM, you know, kind of, again, as we were hitting that phase three maturity, you know, said, okay, for us to really think about the next level and make sure we're thinking about that end-to-end customer experience from, you know, ordering circuits to ordering numbers, all those kind of pieces, we started moving more and more towards design thinking frameworks and, you know, studying the customer journey, understanding things outside of our platform, you know, you because know, to your point, if you think about, you know, employee experience is a big part of ours. Well, what's an employee experience? Well, when I hire a new agent, 
How do I onboard them? How do I train them? What systems do they need access to? How do I teach them about scheduling? There's all these things that are involved with that journey that agent goes on before they can even take that first phone call, you know, or chat or message. So I think that that you know, design thinking framework has helped us start to really open up more thinking about things that happen not only in our platform and how people you know interface, but what are things that are happening outside of our platform that we need to think about as it pertains to that journey. I'm kind of curious if you could talk a little bit, if it's if it's at all interesting on like, what's the process of actually provisioning a telephone number versus like a website domain? And are there people that are, you know, squatting good telephone numbers? Do they sell at auction? You know, if you have like 1-800-Pizza-Pies or something, is that is that worth millions of dollars like, you know, pizza.com would be in, in the web sense? There are definitely uh, vanity numbers out there that are uh, of value. Yeah, you're correct. You know, the good part is I'd say telephony has gotten easier more of the telephony providers. And you go back 10 years ago when I was working a lot more directly with telephony providers, if I wanted to get a phone number, I had to get a workbook. I had to fill it out. I had to put all this information. I had to send it off to them. And it would take weeks, sometimes months, take forever to get those things provisioned. Now, most of them have moved more and more towards APIs. So, you know, in our platform, you know, we are a US carrier. So we have a what we call an interconnected VoIP provider. So we actually have multiple carriers that we write on top of. And then we have number pools that we purchased or are available via APIs. And so, you know, that's part of the making life easier, you know, you know, getting rid of the need to have someone like a Zach sit there and order all your phone numbers. You can actually go right inside of our UI now and type in any kind of number if you're looking for a vanity number, and you can click purchase it and have it activated in one minute or less. Are we close to running out of phone numbers? I don't know that one, to be honest. I think, you know, when you think about 800 numbers, that's where they've had to introduce, you know, 800, then, you know, eight, oh, was it 801 numbers and, you know, added. So there's there's different pieces, but there is a finite amount of numbers. I think that if you think about, you know, the portability that was created around cell phones, I think that's helped because now it's not like I have to go and, you know, get a new number. I can port that number everywhere I want. So there's definitely a limit when when some folks are wanting to grab large, large amounts of numbers. You know, I've talked to customers before that had 50,000 phone numbers kind of piece and uh, are holding on to them because they see that that potentially coming down the pipe. Yeah, it's interesting. And I'm, I imagine you have to deal probably with similar to like sending emails and email server, uh, like IP addresses where you get, you know, a phone number that gets blocked because somebody was using it to send political donation message or a spam message or something. And now that one goes back into the pool and then someone else picks it up later. Oh, yes. Uh, regulatory and compliance is something we, we have to keep on top of for phone numbers. You know, to your point, we also do a lot of email traffic on there. So you can imagine, you know, since we have uh, outbound capabilities where someone can start a campaign, we have to be able to be very careful on all those pieces and what they can do. And we have to make sure our customers are very aware of the compliance and regulatory environment surrounding some of those pieces. Do you have to take any special precautions when you're sort of building new products and prototyping to like keep them in a sandbox or something so that uh, you stay like in compliance with all that when you may be kind of not ready to go full enterprise mode? I, I'm imagining uh, that could be a burden if you're trying to prototype a new product line or do something like that. So for us, actually, I have to go through all that even if I want to get it into more of a prototyping stage. So we have a full, like we've integrated security and compliance in our feature development and release process. So they are engaged from the early, early days on. So when we go and you know have something where we're 
going to prototype, you know, they're looking at it. We have to go through architecture reviews. It goes through a compliance review. And then we have to, you know, we engage with them the entire time we develop that feature. And then it's part of our actual ability to release. So even if I want to go into beta on something in our production environment, because the way our CICD pipeline works, we have our development environment, our testing environment, and then our production environment. For me to put something in that production environment where a customer can touch it, I have to go through all those pieces anyway, since I am running a cloud platform. Anything that's in that production environment is subject to our compliance and regulatory requirements. So it can make it more challenging to be able to do some of those things is the uh, the short answer. Yeah, it seems like it could be both a benefit and a, and a detriment in that it maybe is a little bit harder to get things up and running uh, from, from scratch. But at the same time, maybe that is uh, providing you with a little bit of a moat that there's a lot of regulations that need to be dealt with. And you all have years and years of, of handling it. So what might be a huge issue for somebody that's just getting started is is sort of a par for the course. Yeah, no, definitely. We matured into a lot of this. You know, we we luckily set up a few things again from our learnings in uh, early CAS days. We set up a few of these pieces up front and then we kind of continue to iterate and build on them. So to the point we get our process, because, you know, when you're running a cloud with ours where you've got hundreds of thousands of daily active users on it that are doing it for mission critical business, anything that goes in that production environment has to be just completely rock solid. Even if it's a beta feature that, you know, customers really, really want, we've got to make sure it's not going to cause any problems. We always, our mantra, you know, started by uh, our head of product, Mike Salaji, which is our mantra is always priority number one is security. Secondary is stability, and third is features, and so and that's how we prioritize all of our our work across the platform. Yeah, it's interesting. It kind of reminds me, like it's almost like you're taking the stance of like a utility company, right? Like it's most most important to keep power on and, and the phones the phones ringing versus maybe adding more bells and whistles. Fastest, most nimble, agile utility company you've ever met. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Digital utilities for uh, you know the modern the modern world. That's right. So it's funny you were you were asking earlier, Matt. Quick fun fact: you were talking about running out of numbers. I don't know if you know this, but four years ago, five years ago, Indianapolis has a new area code prefix, four six three. So we started to run out of three one seven area code num- op- number options here in the Indianapolis regional area, and now you can get four six three. It's kind of sad. It, a little piece of the culture is sort of being removed there. I don't know. I haven't seen any glasses that say four four six three yet. They all say three one seven still. That's true. That's <laughs> true. So here, maybe in ten or twenty years, Matt, you could sell your three one seven, you know, vanity number and make a little money off of it. Yeah, you know, phone number flipping instead of domain <laughs> phone name number flipping. flipping. There you go. <laughs> I'm sure someone's doing it. I'm sure. So I know we talked a little bit about AI and some of the future things that are coming there. And I know I've seen some articles about software that can listen in and record uh, like sales calls and, and do analysis to say like, hey, we see that when you say these words or use these phrases, like your close rate is going down. What are some other things that you're, you're either seeing now or you're seeing customers uh, working on that will be released in the next year or two here that, that people would be surprised that you can do that kind of stuff with a phone? So AI has been a big area we've invested in, like many companies, to be transparent. One of the coolest things I think we've actually are getting ready to release is what we call predictive routing. And it's going to be our first release, so it's going to have a few use cases. But really, it's saying, how do I know about Zach as a consumer? How do I know about all my agents? And I can use that to optimize my routing of who I connect Zach with to drive an outcome. So like, for example... Uh, we have what's called you know average handle time, so how long someone is usually on the phone. So if I want to optimize you know for how long my agents are on, 
I can say, look at all my agents, look at all their interactions, look at all the consumers they interacted with that had the same attributes as Zach, and then try to determine which one is going to have the best optimization there. You know, that, that's, you know, just a single example. And we're working on a lot more, you know, we've got three phases of new use cases there, you know, to optimize around, hey, Matt's called in, that looks like Matt, should I connect with an agent and say, here's all the attributes of Matt, here's the agent that usually closes customers that look like that the best, you know, has that close rate, and make sure I, I'm routing you to that person, not just who's too available. It's almost like the the urban legend that there's some like magic phrase you can you can say when you call you know your internet provider to say like no like I'm a technical person like can you please like you know help me uh, reset my my MAC address or something instead of uh, walking through plugging it in and turning it on again. It's going to be interesting because you know there's also things people are setting up more topic spotting and trying to model and say okay look for these three words in all these calls and figure out if there's a trend going on within you know your engagement. So if you think about someone like a, uh, a Microsoft of the world, you know, they want to be watching all those calls and all those emails and look for trends because maybe you know, there's a defect or there's a bug or there's an outage happening on the Xbox network and they would be able to monitor everything that's happening in that customer uh, experience side to, to be able to identify those trends and those things happening quickly. Uh, so there's lots of really cool things there. That'd be awesome if I could imagine a future where you know, I get an automated bug report and it's got attached like this many, you know, support calls came in and like, here's a, here's maybe a sample recording so I can listen to, uh, you know, the customer call and say, oh, here's, here's how they were, you know, reproducing this or something. Sounds like you uh, need to get that patented really quickly and sell it off to Atlassian. (laughs) (laughs) If anyone from Atlassian is listening to the show, we said it first. All right. So Jack, just hearing about everything that you've got going on and especially over the last nine years, is there some practical advice, right? Because PureCloud and Kaz were really like these internal startups inside of this time I started. I think we were, you know, a little over a thousand people. Now I'm sure Genesis is what, 5,000 or so? It's you know, a very large enterprise. That's not terribly uncommon in that there's fledgling products inside of these large, well-established companies. But oftentimes, I feel like I read about this all the time, they get absorbed into the business and get demolished or they get shelved or uh, it just doesn't pan out. You know, this is a, you, you've got a great success story here with the Pure Cloud offering. You know, what, what are some of the wisdoms or advice that you would give somebody that's embarking on that journey or involved in the machine? The number one, you know, I get asked a lot of times, you know, to be successful in product or how have you been successful? And I always say, you know, there's two things that have always, actually probably three things that have always made me successful. One, talking to customers and listening. Any good idea I've ever captured or, you know, I have a patent, you know, it came from listening to customers and hearing what challenges they're solving, what keeps them up at night, you know, what are the business problems that they need to truly solve? You know, I think that there's still, we you hear everyone talk about that, listen to customers, but I still see so many times where, companies don't do that. They don't spend as much time talking and listening to customers because you get bogged down. You get caught up in the day-to-day, you get caught up in you know the escalations and trying to get product out the door. And you forget about just the true value and insight you get from just talking with customers, not emailing with them, getting on a phone call or a Zoom, I guess nowadays, and actually you know spending time with them. I think that's that's a key thing for everything. The other piece for me, you know, kind of as growing my career, the, my success has come from two places, from one, having great mentors and great coaches above me, 
it's easy to have a, a little bit of a hard head sometimes to say, I'm amazing and I'm going to do this all on my own. You know, I've had so many great mentors that have, you know, helped grow me and give me ideas and widen my, my view of the world in a lot of ways. Uh, I think that's been a huge thing. And then on the flip side, I've always found that if I surround myself on my teams with people that are much smarter than me, that's always going to be beneficial. You know, I have the most amazing product team right now. It's not that Jack is super smart and amazing. It's that I have amazing people that are on the team and they tell me what we need to do. You know, I help give them the runway. I open up the ways for them to be successful. I try to put the, connect them in the right ways. But ultimately, it's because they are so amazing that, you know, has helped make our team amazing and actually deploy the things we've done and actually develop the new products we've been on to release. Yeah, I mean, I, I couldn't agree more with that philosophy and uh, definitely share those feelings, man. Jack, I greatly appreciate your time with us. You have brought me back into a world that I have not been a part of for many years. And uh, I promise not all of it was traumatic. A lot of it was really, really good. So I appreciate you being here and telling us about what you've got going on and all the, I'm sure, fun things that are coming here soon. Uh, I'm sure it has not slowed down for you guys here recently. No, it has not. And yeah, you know, it's been great to catch up with you. You know, brings back fond memories. You know, we've always had great teams and great times to, you know, as we built businesses. So I agree. Thank you, my friend, so much. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm Zach Darnell, and this is Behind the Product, an original podcast by SCP. You can find more about us at scp.com slash podcast and subscribe wherever you get your shows. Thank you so much for listening. See you next time.